The Boats of the Glen Carrig. Being an account of their adventures in the strange places of the earth, after the foundering of the good ship Glen Carrig, through striking upon a hidden rock in the unknown seas to the southward. As told by John Winterstraw, gentleman, to his son, James Winterstraw, in the year 1757, and by him, committed very properly and legibly to manuscript. Chapter 9. What Happened in the Dusk Now with the coming of the dawn, a lasting silence stole across the island and into the valley, and conceiving that we had nothing more to fear, the bosun bade us get some rest while he kept watch. And so I got at last a very substantial little spell of sleep, which made me fit enough for the day's work. Presently, after some hours had passed, the bosun roused us to go with him to the further side of the island to gather fuel, and soon as we were back with each a load, so that in a little we had the fire going right merrily. Now, for breakfast, we had a hash of broken biscuit, salt meat, and some shellfish, which the bosun had picked up from the beach at the foot of the further hill, the whole being right liberally flavored with some of the vinegar, which the bosun said would help keep down any scurvy that might be threatening us. And at the end of the meal, he served out to us each a little of the molasses, which we mixed with hot water and drank. The meal being ended, he went into the tent to take a look at Job, the which he had done already in the early morning, for the condition of the lad preyed somewhat upon him he being, for all his size and top roughness, a man of surprisingly tender heart. Yet the boy remained much as on the previous evening, so that we knew not what to do with him to bring him into any better health. One thing we tried, knowing that no food had passed his lips since the previous morning, and that was to get some little quantity of hot water, rum, and molasses down his throat, for it seemed to us he might die from very lack of food. But though we worked with him for more than the half of an hour, we could not get him to come to sufficiently to take anything, and without that we had fear of suffocating him. And so presently we had perforce to leave him within the tent and go about our business, for there was very much to be done. Yet before we did aught else, the bosun led us all into the valley, being determined to make a very thorough exploration of it, perchance there might be any lurking beast or devil thing waiting to rush out and destroy us as we worked, and more, he would make search that he might discover what manner of creatures had disturbed our night. In the early morning, when we had gone for the fuel, we had kept to the upper skirt of the valley, where the rock of the nearer hill came down into the spongy ground, but now we struck right down into the middle part of the vale, making a way amid the mighty fungi to the pit-like opening that filled the bottom of the valley. Now, though the ground was very soft, there was in it so much of springiness that it left no trace of our steps after we had gone on a little way, none, that is, save that in odd places a wet patch followed upon our treading. Then, when we got ourselves near to the pit, the ground became softer, so that our feet sank into it, and left very real impressions. 
and here we found tracks most curious and bewildering. For amid the slush that edged the pit, which I would mention here had less the look of a pit now that I had come near to it, were multitudes of markings which I can liken to nothing so much as the tracks of mighty slugs amid the mud, only that they were not altogether like to that of slugs. For there were other markings, such as might have been made by bunches of eels cast down and picked up continually, at least this is what they suggested to me, and I do but put it down as such. Apart from the markings which I have mentioned, there was everywhere a deal of slime, and this we traced all over the valley, among the great toadstool plants. But beyond that which I have already remarked, we found nothing. Nay, but I was near to forgetting, we found a quantity of this thin slime upon those fungi which filled the end of the little valley nearest to our encampment, and here also we discovered many of them fresh broken or uprooted, and there was the same mark of the beast upon them all, and now I remember the dull thuds that I had heard in the night, and made little doubt but that the creatures had climbed the great toadstools so that they might spy us out. And it may be that many climbed upon one, so that their weight broke the fungi or uprooted them, at least so the thought came to me. And so we made an end of our search, and after that, the bosun set each one of us to work. But first he had us all back to the beach to give a hand to turn over the boat, so that he might get to the damaged part. Now, having the bottom of the boat full to his view, he made discovery that there was other damage beside that of the burst plank, for the bottom plank of all had come away from the keel, which seemed to us a very serious matter, though it did not show when the boat was upon her bilges. Yet the bosun assured us that he had no doubts but that she could be made seaworthy, though it would take a greater while than hitherto he had thought needful. Having concluded his examination of the boat, the bosun sent one of the men to bring the bottom boards out of the tent, for he needed some planking for the repair of the damage. Yet when the boards had been brought, he needed still something which they could not supply, and this was a length of very sound wood of some three inches in breadth each way, which he intended to bolt against the starboard side of the keel after he had gotten the planking replaced so far as was possible. He had hopes that by means of this device he would be able to nail the bottom plank to this and then caulk it with oakum, so making the boat almost so sound as ever. Now hearing him express his need for such a piece of timber, we were all adrift to know from whence such a thing could be gotten, until there came suddenly to me a memory of the mast and topmast upon the other side of the island, and at once I mentioned them. At that the bosun nodded, saying that we might get the timber out of it, though it would be a work requiring some considerable labor, in that we had only a handsaw and a small hatchet. Then he sent us across to be getting it clear of the weed, promising to follow when he had made an end of trying to get the two displaced planks back into position. Having reached the spars, we set to with a very good will to shift away the weed and rack that was piled over them, and very much entangled with the rigging. Presently we had laid them bare, 
and so we discovered them to be in remarkably sound condition, the lower mast especially being a fine piece of timber. All the lower and top mast standing rigging was still attached, though in places the lower rigging was stranded so far as halfway up the shrouds. Yet there remained much that was good, and all of it quite free from rot, and of the very finest quality of white hemp, such as is to be seen only in the best found vessels. About the time that we had finished clearing the weed, the bosun came over to us, bringing with him the saw and the hatchet. Under his directions, we cut the lanyards of the topmast rigging, and after that sawed through the topmast just above the cap. Now this was a very tough piece of work, and employed us a great part of the morning, even though we took turn and turn at the saw. And when it was done, we were mightily glad that the bosun bade one of the men go over with some weed and make up the fire for dinner, after which he was to put on a piece of the salt meat to boil. In the meanwhile, the bosun had started to cut through the topmast, about fifteen feet beyond the first cut, for that was the length of the batten he required. Yet so wearisome was the work that we had not gotten more than half through with it before the man whom the bosun had sent returned to say that the dinner was ready. When this was dispatched, and we had rested a little over our pipes, the bosun rose and led us back, for he was determined to get through with the topmast before dark. Presently, relieving each other frequently, we completed the second cut, and after that the bosun set us to saw a block about twelve inches deep from the remaining portion of the topmast. From this, when we had cut it, he proceeded to hew wedges with the hatchet. Then he notched the end of the fifteen-foot log, and into the notch he drove the wedges, and so towards evening, as much maybe by good luck as by good management, he had divided the log into two halves, the split running very fairly down the center. Now perceiving how that it drew near to sundown, he bade the men haste and gather weed and carry it across to our camp. But one he sent along the shore to make a search for shellfish among the weed. Yet he himself ceased not to work at the divided log, and kept me with him as helper. Thus, within the next hour, we had a length maybe some four inches in diameter, split off the whole length of one of the halves, and with this he was very well content, though it seemed but a very little result for so much labor. By this time the dusk was upon us, and the men, having made an end of weed-carrying, were returned to us, and stood about, waiting for the bosun to go into camp. At this moment, the man the bosun had sent to gather shellfish returned, and he had a great crab upon his spear, which he had spitted through the belly. This creature could not have been less than a foot across the back, and had a very formidable appearance, yet it proved to be a most tasty matter for our supper, when it had been placed for a while in boiling water. Now so soon as this man was returned, we made it once for the camp carrying with us the piece of timber which we had hewn from the topmast. By this time it was quite dusk, and very strange amid the great fungi as we struck across the upper edge of the valley toward the opposite beach. 
Particularly, I noticed that the hateful, moldy odor of these monstrous vegetables was more offensive than I had found it to be in the daytime, though this may be because I used my nose the more, in that I could not use my eyes to any great extent. We had gotten halfway across the top of the valley, and the gloom was deepening steadily, when there stole to me upon the calmness of the evening air a faint smell something quite different from that of the surrounding fungi. A moment later, I got a great whiff of it and was near sickened with the abomination I smelled, but the memory of that foul thing which had come to the side of the boat in the dawn gloom before we discovered the island roused me to a terror beyond that of the sickness of my stomach, for suddenly I knew what manner of thing it was that had beslimed my face and throat upon the previous night and left its hideous stench lingering in my nostrils, and with the knowledge I cried out to the bosun to make haste, for there were demons with us in the valley, and at that some of the men made to run, but he bade them in a very grim voice stay where they were and keep well together, else would they be attacked and overcome straggled all among the fungi in the dark. And this being, I doubt not, as much in fear of the rounding dark as of the bosun, they did. And so we came safely out of the valley, though there seemed to follow us a little lower down the slope an uncanny slithering. Now, so soon as we reached the camp, the bosun ordered four fires to be lit, one on each side of the tent, and this we did, letting them at the embers of our old fire, which we had most foolishly allowed to die down. When the fires had been got going, we put on the boiler and treated the great crab, as I have already mentioned, and so fell to upon a very hearty supper. But, as we ate, each man had his weapon stuck in the sand beside him, for we had knowledge that the valley held some devilish thing, or maybe many, though the knowing did not spoil our appetites. And so presently we came to an end of eating, whereat each man pulled out his pipe, intending to smoke. But the bosun told one of the men to get him upon his feet and keep watch, else might we be in danger of surprise, with every man lolling upon the sand. And this seemed to me very good sense, for it was easy to see that the men too readily deemed themselves secure by reason only of the brightness of the fires about them. Now, whilst the men were taking their ease within the circle of the fires, the bosun lit one of the dips which we had out of the ship in the creek, and went in to see how Job was after the day's rest. At that I rose up, reproaching myself for having forgotten the poor lad, and followed the bosun into the tent, Yet I had but reached the opening when he gave out a loud cry and held the candle low down to the sand. At that I saw the reason for his agitation, for in the place where we had left Job there was nothing. I stepped into the tent, and in the same instant there came to my nostrils the faint odor of the horrible stench which had come to me in the valley, and before then from the thing that came to the side of the boat. And suddenly, I knew that Job had fallen prey of those foul things, 
And knowing this, I called out to the bosun that they had taken the boy. And then my eyes caught the smear of slime upon the sand, and I had proof that I was not mistaken. Now, so soon as the bosun knew all that was in my mind, though indeed it did but corroborate that which had come to his own, he came swiftly out from the tent, bidding the men to stand back, for they had come all about the entrance, being very much discomposed at that which the bosun had discovered. Then the bosun took from a bundle of the reeds, which they had cut at the time when he had bidden them gather fuel, several of the thickest, and to one of these he bound a great mass of the dry weed, whereupon the men, divining his intention, did likewise with the others, and so we had each of us the wherewithal for a mighty torch. So soon as we had completed our preparations, we took each man his weapon, and plunging our torches into the fires, set off along the track which had been made by the devil things, and the body of poor Job. For now that we had suspicion that harm had come to him, the marks in the sand and the slime were very plain to be seen, so that it was a wonder that we had not discovered them earlier. Now the bosun led the way, and finding the marks led direct to the valley, he broke into a run, holding his torch well above his head. At that each of us did likewise, for we had a great desire to be together. And further than this, I think with truth I may say, we were all fierce to avenge Job, so that we had less of fear in our hearts than otherwise had been the case. In less than the half of a minute we had reached the end of the valley. But here, the ground being of a nature not happy in the revealing of tracks, we were at fault to know in which direction to continue. At that, the bosun set up a loud shout to Job, perchance he might yet be alive. But there came no answer to us, save a low and uncomfortable echo. Then the bosun, desiring to waste no more time, ran straight down towards the center of the valley, and we followed and kept our eyes very open about us. We had gotten perhaps halfway, when one of the men shouted that he saw something ahead, but the bosun had seen it already, for he was running straight down upon it, holding his torch high and swinging his great cutlass. Then, instead of smiting, he fell upon his knees beside it, and the following instant we were up with him, and in that same moment it seemed to me that I saw a number of white shapes melt swiftly into the shadows further ahead but I had no thought for these when I perceived that by which the bosun knelt, for it was the stark body of Job, and no inch of it but was covered with the little ringed marks that I had discovered upon my throat, and from every place there ran a trickle of blood, so that he was a most horrid and fearsome sight. At the sight of Job so mangled and bebled, there came over us the sudden quiet of a mortal terror, and in that space of silence the bosom placed his hand over the poor lad's heart, but there was no movement, though the body was still warm. Immediately upon that he rose to his feet, a look of vast wrath upon his great face. He plucked his torch from the ground, into which he had plunged the haft, and stared round into the silence of the valley, but there was no living thing in sight, 
Nothing save the giant fungi and the strange shadows cast by our great torches and the loneliness. At this moment, one of the men's torches having burnt near out fell all to pieces so that he held nothing but the charred support and immediately two more came to a similar end. Upon this, we became afraid that they would not last us back to the camp, and we looked to the bosun to know his wish. But the man was very silent, peering everywhere into the shadows. Then a fourth torch fell to the ground in a shower of embers, and I turned to look. In the same instant, there came a great flare of light behind me, accompanied by the dull thud of a dry matter set suddenly alight. I glanced swiftly back to the bosun, and he was staring up at one of the giant toadstools which was in flames all along its nearer edge, burning with an incredible fury, sending out spirits of flame, and anon giving out sharp retorts, and at each retort a fine powder was belched into thin streams, which, getting into our throats and nostrils, set us sneezing and coughing most lamentably, so that I am convinced had any enemy come upon us at that very moment, we had been undone by reason of our uncouth helplessness. Now, whether it had come to the bosun to set alight this first of the fungi, I know not, for it may be that his torch coming by chance against it set it afire. However it chanced, the bosun took it as a veritable hint from providence, and was already setting his torch to one a little further off, while the rest of us were near to choking with our coughing and sneezing. Yet that were we so suddenly overcome by the potency of the powder, I doubt if a full minute passed before we were each one busied after the manner of the bosun, and those whose torches had burned out knocked flaming pieces from the burning fungus, and with these impaled upon their torch sticks did so much execution as any. And thus it happened that within five minutes of this discovery of Job's body, the whole of that hideous valley sent up to heaven the reek of its burning, while we, filled with murderous desires, ran hither and thither with our weapons, seeking to destroy the vile creatures that had brought the poor lad to so unholy a death. Yet nowhere could we discover any brute or creature upon which to ease our vengeance. And so, presently, the valley becoming impassable by reason of the heat, the flying sparks, and the abundance of the acrid dust, we made back to the body of the boy, and bore him thence to the shore. And during all that night no man of us slept, and the burning of the fungi sent up a mighty pillar of flame out of the valley, as out of the mouth of a monstrous pit, and when the morning came, it still burned. Then, when it was daylight, some of us slept, being greatly awearied, but others kept watch. And when we waked, there was a great wind and rain upon the island. Chapter 10 The Light in the Weed now the wind was very violent from the sea, and threatened to blow down our tent, the which indeed it achieved at last as we made an end of a cheerless breakfast. Yet the bosun bade us not trouble to put it up again, but spread it out with the edges raised upon props made from the reeds, 
so that we might catch some of the rainwater, for it was become imperative that we should renew our supply before putting out again to sea. And while some of us were busied about this, he took the others and set up a small tent made of the spare canvas, and under this he sheltered all of our matters like to be harmed by the rain. In a little, the rain continuing very violent, we had near a breaker full of water collected in the canvas, and were about to run it off into one of the breakers when the bosun cried out to us to hold, and first taste the water before we mixed it with that which we had already. At that we put down our hands and scooped up some of the water to taste, and thus we discovered it to be brackish and quite undrinkable, at which I was amazed, until the bosun reminded us that the canvas had been saturated for many days with salt water, so that it would take a great quantity of fresh before all the salt was washed out. Then he told us to lay it flat upon the beach and scour it well on both sides with the sand, which we did, and afterwards let the rain rinse it well, whereupon the next water that we caught we found to be near fresh, though not sufficiently so for our purpose. Yet when we had rinsed it once more, it became clear of the salt, so that we were able to keep all that we caught further. And then, something before noon, the rain ceased to fall, though coming again at odd times in short squalls, yet the wind died not, but blew steadily, and continued so from that quarter during the remainder of the time that we were upon the island. Upon the ceasing of the rain, the bosun called us all together, that we might make a decent burial of the unfortunate lad, whose remains had lain during the night upon one of the bottom boards of the boat. After a little discussion, it was decided to bury him in the beach, for the only part where there was soft earth was in the valley, and none of us had a stomach for that place. Moreover, the sand was soft and easy to dig, and as we had no proper tools, this was a great consideration. Presently, using the bottom boards and the oars and the hatchet, we had a place large and deep enough to hold the boy, and into this we placed him. We made no prayer over him, but stood about the grave for a little space in silence. Then the bosun signed to us to fill in the sand, and therewith we covered up the poor lad and left him to his sleep. Presently we made our dinner, after which the bosun served out to each one of us a very sound taught of the rum, for he was minded to bring us back again to a cheerful state of mind. After we had sat a while smoking, the bosun divided us into two parties to make a search through the island among the rocks. Perchance we should find water, collected from the rain, among the hollows and crevices. For though we had gotten some, through our device with the sail, yet we had by no means caught sufficient for our need. He was especially anxious for haste, in that the sun had come out again, for he was feared that such small pools as we would find would be speedily dried up by the sun's heat. Now the bosun headed one party, and set the big seamen over the other, bidding all to keep their weapons very handy. Then he set out to the rocks about the base of the nearer hill, sending the others to the farther and greater one, and in each party we carried an empty breaker slung from a couple of the stout reeds, so that we might pull all such driblets as we should find straight away into it 
before they had time to vanish into the hot air. And for the purpose of bailing up the water, we had brought with us our tin pannikins and one of the boat's bailers also. In a while, and after much scrambling amid the rocks, we came upon a little pool of water that was remarkably sweet and fresh, and from this we removed near three gallons before it became dry. After that we came across maybe five or six others, but not one of them near so big as the first. Yet we were not displeased, for we had near three parts filled the breaker, and so we made back to the camp, having some wonder as to the luck of the other party. When we came near, we found the others return before us, and seeming in a very high content with themselves, so that we had no need to call to them as to whether they had filled their breaker. When they saw us, they set out to us at a run to tell us that they had come upon a great basin of fresh water in a deep hollow a third of the distance up the side of the far hill, and at this the bosun bade us put down our breaker and make all of us to the hill, so that he might examine for himself whether their news was so good as it seemed. Presently, being guided by the other party, we passed around to the back of the far hill and discovered it to go upward to the top at an easy slope, with many ledges and broken places, so that it was scarce more difficult than a stair to climb. And so, having climbed perhaps ninety or a hundred feet, we came suddenly upon the place which held the water, and found that they had not made too much of their discovery. For the pool was near twenty feet long by twelve broad, and so clear as though it had come from a fountain. Yet it had considerable depth, as we discovered by thrusting a spear shaft down into it. Now the boatswain, having seen for himself how good a supply of water there was for our needs, seemed very much relieved in his mind, and declared that within three days at the most we might leave the island, at which we felt none of us any regret. Indeed, had the boat escaped harm, we had been able to leave that same day, but this could not be, for there was much to be done before we had her seaworthy again. Having waited until the boatswain had made complete his examination, we turned to descend, thinking that this would be the boatswain's intent, but he called to us to stay, and looking back, we saw that he made to finish the ascent of the hill. At that we hastened to follow him, though we had no notion of his reason for going higher. Presently we were come to the top, and here we found a very spacious place, nicely level save that in one or two parts it was crossed by deep cracks, maybe half a foot to a foot wide, and perhaps three to six fathoms long, but apart from these and some great boulders it was, as I have mentioned, a spacious place. Moreover, it was bone dry and pleasantly firm under one's feet after so long upon the sand. I think even thus early I had some notion of the boson's design, for I went to the edge that overlooked the valley and peered down, and finding it nigh a sheer precipice, found myself nodding my head as though it were in accordance with some part-formed wish. Presently, looking about me, I discovered the boson to be surveying that part which looked over towards the weed, and I made across to join him. Here, again, I saw that the hill fell away very sheer, and after that we went across to the seaward edge 
and there it was near as abrupt as on the weed side. Then, having by this time thought a little upon the matter, I put it straight to the bosun that here would make indeed a very secure camping place, with nothing to come at us upon our sides or back, and our front, which was where the slope came up, could be watched with ease. And this I put to him with great warmth, for I was mortally in dread of the coming night. When I had made an end of speaking, the bosun disclosed to me that this was, as I had suspicion, his intent, and immediately he called to the men that we should haste down and ship our camp to the top of the hill. At that, the men expressed their approbation, and we made haste every one of us down to the camp and began straightway to move our gear to the hilltop. In the meanwhile, the bosun, taking me to assist him, set to again upon the boat, being intent to get his batten nicely shaped and fit to the side of the keel so that it would bed well to the keel, but more particularly to the plank which had sprung outward from its place. And at this he labored the greater part of that afternoon, using the little hatchet to shape the wood, which he did with surprising skill. Yet when the evening was come, he had not brought it to his liking, but it must not be thought that he did naught but work at the boat, for he had the men to direct, and once he had to make his way to the top of the hill to fix the place for the tent. And after the tent was up, he set them to carry the dry weed to the new camp, and at this he kept them until near dusk, for he had vowed never again to be without a sufficiency of fuel. But two of the men he sent to collect shellfish, putting two of them to the task because he would not have one alone upon the island, not knowing but that there might be danger, even though it were still bright day. And a most happy ruling it proved, for a little past the middle of the afternoon we heard them shouting at the other end of the valley, and not knowing but that they were in need of assistance, we ran with all haste to discover the reason for their call, passing along the right-hand side of the blackened and sodden vale. Upon reaching the further beach, we saw a most incredible sight, for the two men were running towards us through the thick masses of the weed, while no more than four or five fathoms behind, they were pursued by an enormous crab. Now I had thought the crab we had tried to capture before coming to the island a prodigy unsurpassed, but this creature was no more than treble its size, seeming as though a prodigious table were a chase of them. And moreover, spite of its monstrous bulk, it made better way over the weed than I should have conceived to be possible, running almost sideways, and with one enormous claw raised near a dozen feet into the air. Now, whether omitting accidents, the men would have made good their escape to the firmer ground of the valley, where they could have attained to a greater speed, I do not know. But suddenly one of them tripped over a loop of the weed, and the next instant lay helpless upon his face. He had been dead the following moment, but for the pluck of his companion, who faced round manfully upon the monster, and ran at it with his twenty-foot spear. It seemed to me that the spear took it about a foot below the overhanging armor of the great back shell, and I could see that it penetrated some distance into the creature, the man having, by the aid of providence, stricken it in a vulnerable part. Upon receiving this thrust, the mighty crab ceased at once its pursuit, 
and clipped at the haft of the spear with its great mandible, snapping the weapon more easily than I had done the same thing to a straw. By the time we had raced up to the men, the one who had stumbled was again upon his feet and turning to assist his comrade. But the bosun snatched his spear from him and leapt forward himself, for the crab was making now at the other man. But the bosun did not attempt to thrust the spear into the monster, but he instead made two swift blows at the great protruding eyes, and in a moment the creature had curled itself up, helpless, save that the huge claw waved about aimlessly. At that, the bosun drew us off, though the man who had attacked the crab desired to make an end of it, averring that we should get some very good eating from it. But to this the bosun would not listen, telling him that it was yet capable of very deadly mischief, did any but come within reach of its prodigious mandible. And after this he bade them look no more for shellfish, but take out the two fishing lines which we had, and see if they could catch aught from some safe ledge on the further side of the hill upon which we had made our camp. Then he returned back to his mending of the boat. It was a little before the evening came down upon the island that the bosun ceased work, and after that he called to the men who, having made an end of their fuel-carrying, were standing near to place the full breakers, which we had not thought needful to carry to the new camp on account of their weight, under the upturned boat, some holding up the gunwale whilst the others pushed them under. Then the bosun laid the unfinished batten along with them, and we lowered the boat again over all, trusting to its weight to prevent any creature from meddling. After that we made it once to the camp, being wearifully tired and with a hearty anticipation of supper. Upon reaching the hilltop, the men whom the bosun had sent with the lines came to show him a very fine fish, something like to a huge kingfish, which they had caught a few minutes earlier. This, the bosun, after examining, did not hesitate to pronounce fit for food, whereupon they set to and opened and cleaned it. Now, as I have said, it was not unlike a great kingfish, and like it had a mouth very full of formidable teeth, the use of which I understood the better when I saw the contents of its stomach, which seemed to consist of nothing but the coiled tentacles of squid or cuttlefish, with which, as I have shown, the weed continent swarmed. When these were upset upon the rock, I was confounded to perceive the length and thickness of some of them, and could only conceive that this particular fish must be a very desperate enemy to them, and able successfully to attack monsters of a bulk infinitely greater than its own. After this, and while the supper was preparing, the bosun called to some of the men to put up a piece of the spare canvas upon a couple of the reeds, so as to make a screen against the wind, which up there was so fresh that it came near at times to scattering the fire abroad. This they found not difficult, for a little on the windward side of the fire there ran one of the cracks of which I have made previous mention, and into this they jammed the supports, and so in a very little time had the fire screened. Presently the supper was ready, and I found the fish to be very fair eating, though somewhat coarse. But this was no great matter for concern with so empty a stomach as I contained. And here I would remark that we made our fishing save our provisions through all our stay on the island. Then, after we had come to an end of our eating, 
We lay down to a most comfortable smoke, for we had no fear of attack at that height, and with precipices upon all side, save that which lay in front. Yet so soon as we had rested and smoked a while, the boatswain set the watches, for he would run no risk through carelessness. By this time the night was drawing on apace, yet it was not so dark but that one could perceive matters at a very reasonable distance. Presently, being in a mood that tended to thoughtfulness, and feeling a desire to be alone for a little, I strolled away from the fire to the leeward edge of the hilltop. Here, I paced up and down a while, smoking and meditating. Anon, I would stare out across the immensity of the vast continent of weed and slime that stretched its incredible desolation out beyond the darkening horizon, and there would come the thought to me of the terror of men whose vessels had been entangled among its strange growths, and so my thoughts came to the lone derelict that lay out there in the dusk, and I fell to wondering what had been the end of her people, and at that I grew yet more solemn in my heart for it seemed to me that they must have died at last by starvation, if not by that, then by the act of some one of the devil creatures which inhabited that lonely weed world. And then, even as I fell upon this thought, the boatswain clapped me upon the shoulder and told me in a very hearty way to come to the light of the fire and banish all melancholy thoughts, for he had a very penetrating discernment and had followed me quietly from the camping place having had reason once or twice before to chide me for gloomy meditation. And for this, and many other matters, I had grown to like the man, the which I could almost believe at times was his regarding of me. But his words were too few for me to gather his feelings, though I had hoped that they were as I surmised. And so I came back to the fire, and presently, it not being my time to watch until after midnight, I turned into the tent for a spell of sleep, having first arranged a comfortable spread of some of the softer portions of the dry weed to make me a bed. Now I was very full of sleep, so that I slept heavily, and in this wise heard not the man on watch call the boatswain. Yet the rousing of the others waked me, and so I came to myself and found the tent empty, at which I ran very hurriedly to the doorway and so discovered that there was a clear moon in the sky, the which, by reason of the cloudiness that had prevailed, we had been without for the past two nights. Moreover, the sultriness had gone, the wind having blown it away with the clouds. Yet, though maybe I appreciated this, it was but in a half-conscious manner, for I was put about to discover the whereabouts of the men, and the reason of their leaving the tent. With this purpose I stepped out from the entrance, and the following instant discovered them all in a clump beside the leeward edge of the hilltop. At that I held my tongue, for I knew not but that silence might be their desire. But I ran hastily over to them, and inquired of the boatswain what manner of thing it was which called them from their sleep, and he, for answer, pointed out into the greatness of the weed continent. I stared out over the breadth of the weed showing very ghostly in the moonlight, but for the moment I saw not the thing to which he purposed to draw my attention. Then suddenly it fell within the circle of my gaze, a little light out in the lonesomeness. For the space of some moments I stared with bewildered eyes. 
Then it came to me with abruptness that the light shone from the lone derelict lying out in the weed, the same that upon that very evening I had looked with sorrow and awe because of the end of those who had been in her. And now, behold, a light burning, seemingly within one of her after cabins, though the moon was scarce powerful enough to enable the outline of the hulk to be seen clear of the rounding wilderness. And from this time until the day, we had no more sleep, but made up the fire and sat round it, full of excitement and wonder, and getting up continually to discover if the light still burned. This it ceased to do about an hour after I had first seen it, but it was the more proof that some of our kind were no more than the half of a mile from our camp. And at last the day came. Chapter 11 The Signals from the Ship Now, so soon as it was clearly light, we went all of us to the leeward brow of the hill to stare upon the derelict which now we had cause to believe no derelict, after all, but an inhabited vessel. Yet, though we watched her for upwards of two hours, we could discover no sign of any living creature, the which, indeed, had we been in cooler minds, we had not thought strange, seeing that she was also shut in by the great superstructure. But we were hot to see a fellow creature, after so much lonesomeness and terror in strange lands and seas, and so could not by any means contain ourselves in patience until those aboard the hulk should choose to discover themselves to us. And so at last, being wearied with watching, we made it up together to shout when the bosun should give us the signal, by this means making a good volume of sound which we conceived the wind might carry down to the vessel. Yet though we raised many shouts, making as it seemed to us a very great noise, there came no response from the ship, and at last we were fain to cease from our calling, and ponder some other way of bringing ourselves to the notice of those within the hulk. For a while we talked, some proposing one thing and some another, but none of them seeming like to achieve our purpose. And after that we fell to marveling that the fire which we had lit in the valley had not awakened them to the fact that some of their fellow creatures were upon the island. For had it, we could not suppose but that they would have kept a perpetual watch upon the island until such time as they should have been able to attract our notice. Nay, more than this, it was scarce credible that they should not have made an answering fire, or set some of their bunting above the superstructure so that our gaze should be arrested upon the instant we chanced to glance toward the hulk. But so far from this, there appeared even a purpose to shun our attention, for that light which we had viewed in the past night was more in the way of an accident than of the nature of a purposeful exhibition. And so presently we went to breakfast, eating heartily, our night of wakefulness having given us mighty appetites. But for all that, we were so engrossed by the mystery of the lonesome craft that I doubt if any of us knew what manner of food it was with which we filled our bellies. For first one view of the matter would be raised, and when this had been combated, another would be broached. And in this wise, it came up finally that some of the men were falling in doubt whether the ship was inhabited by anything human, saying rather that it might be held by some demonic creature of the great weed continent. At this proposition, there came among us a very uncomfortable silence. 
for not only did it chill the warmth of our hopes, but seemed to like to provide us with a fresh terror who were already acquainted with too much. Then the bosun spoke, laughing with a hearty contempt at our sudden fears, and pointed out that it was just as like that they aboard the ship had been put in fear by the great blaze from the valley as that they should take it for a sign that fellow creatures and friends were at hand. For, as he put it to us, who of us could say what fell brutes and demons the weed continent did hold? And if we had reason to know that there were very dread things among the weed, how much more must they, who had, for all that we knew, been many years beset around by such? And so, as he went on to make clear, we might suppose that they were very well aware there had come some creatures to the island, yet maybe they desired not to make themselves known until they had been given sight of them, and because of this we must wait until they chose to discover themselves to us. Now when the bosun had made an end, we felt each one of us greatly cheered, for his discourse seemed very reasonable, yet there were many matters that troubled our company, for as one put it, was it not mightily strange that we had not had previous sight of their light, or in the day of the smoke from their galley fire? But to this the boatswain replied that our camp hitherto had lain in a place where we had not sight, even of the great world of weed, leaving alone any view of the derelict. And more, that at such times as we had crossed to the opposite beach, we had been occupied too sincerely to have much thought to watch the hulk, which indeed from that position showed only her great superstructure. Further, that until the preceding day we had but once climbed to any height, and that from our present camp the derelict could not be viewed, and to do so we had to go near to the leeward edge of the hilltop. And so, breakfast being ended, we went all of us to see if there were yet any signs of life in the hulk. But when an hour had gone, we were no wiser. Therefore, it being folly to waste further time, the bosun left one man to watch from the brow of the hill, charging him very strictly to keep in such position that he could be seen by any aboard the silent craft, and so took the rest down to assist him in the repairing of the boat. And from thence on, during the day, he gave the men a turn each at watching, telling them to wave to him should there come any sign from the hulk. Yet, accepting the watch, he kept every man so busy as might be, some bringing weed to keep up a fire which he had lit near the boat, one to help him turn and hold the batten upon which he labored, and two he sent across to the wreck of the mast to detach one of the fuddock shrouds, which, as is most rare, were made of iron rods. This, when they brought it, he bade me heat in the fire, and afterwards beat out straight at one end, and when this was done, he set me to burn holes with it through the keel of the boat at such places as he had marked, these being for the bolts with which he had determined to fasten on the batten. In the meanwhile, he continued to shape the batten until it was a very good and true fit according to his liking, and all the while he cried out to this man and to that one to do this or that and so I perceived that apart from the necessity of getting the boat into seaworthy condition, he was desirous to keep the men busied, for they were become so excited at the thought of fellow creatures almost within hail 
that he could not hope to keep them sufficiently in hand without some matter upon which to employ them. Now it must not be supposed that the boatswain had no share of our excitement, for I noticed that he gave ever and anon a glance to the crown of the far hill, perchance the watchman had some news for us. Yet the morning went by, and no signal came to tell us that the people in the ship had designed to show themselves to the man upon watch, and so we came to dinner. At this meal, as might be supposed, we had a second discussion upon the strangeness of the behavior of those aboard the hulk, yet none could give any more reasonable explanation than the boatswain had given in the morning, and so we left it at that. Presently, when we had smoked and rested very comfortably, for the boatswain was no tyrant, mind you, we rose at his bidding to descend once more to the beach. But at this moment, one of the men having run to the edge of the hill to take a short look at the hulk, cried out that a part of the great superstructure over the quarter had been removed or pushed back, and that there was a figure there, seeming so far as his unaided sight could tell, to be looking through a spyglass at the island. Now it would be difficult to tell of all our excitement at this news, and we ran eagerly to see for ourselves if it could be as he informed us. And so it was. For we could see the person very clearly, though remote and small because of the distance. That he had seen us, we discovered in a moment. For he began very suddenly to wave something, which I judged to be the spyglass, in a wild manner, seeming also to be jumping up and down. Yet I doubt not but that we were as much excited. For suddenly I discovered myself to be shouting with the rest in a most insane fashion, and moreover I was waving my hands and running to and fro upon the brow of the hill. Then I observed that the figure on the hulk had disappeared, but it was for no more than a moment, and then it was back, and there were near a dozen with it, and it seemed to me that some of them were females, but the distance was over great for surety. Now these, all of them, seeing us upon the brow of the hill, where we must have shown up plain against the sky, began at once to wave in a very frantic way, and we, replying in like manner, shouted ourselves hoarse with vain greetings. But soon as we grew wearied of the unsatisfactoriness of this method of showing our excitement, and one took a piece of the square canvas and let it stream out into the wind, waving it to them, and another took a second piece and did likewise, while a third man rolled up a short bit into a cone and made use of it as a speaking trumpet, though I doubt if his voice carried any the further because of it. For my part, I had seized one of the long bamboo-like reeds which were lying about near the fire, and with this I was making a very brave show. And so it may be seen how very great and genuine was our exaltation upon our discovery of these poor people shut off from the world within that lonesome craft. Then suddenly it seemed to come to us to realize that they were among the weed and we upon the hilltop, and that we had no means of bridging that which lay between, and at this we faced one another to discuss what we should do to effect the rescue of those within the hulk, yet it was little that we could even suggest. For though one spoke of how he had seen a rope cast by means of a mortar to a ship that lay offshore, yet this helped us not, for we had no mortar. But here the same man cried out that they in the ship might have such a thing, 
so that they would be able to shoot the rope to us. And at this we thought more upon his saying, For if they had such a weapon, then might our difficulties be solved. Yet we were greatly at a loss to know how we should discover whether they were possessed of one, and further to explain our design to them. But here the boson came to our help, and bade one man go quickly and char some of the reeds in the fire, and while this was doing, he spread out upon the rock one of the spare lengths of canvas. Then he sung out to the man to bring him one of the pieces of charred reed, and with this he wrote our question upon the canvas, calling for fresh charcoal as he required it. Then, having made an end of writing, he bade two of the men take hold of the canvas by the ends and expose it to the view of those in the ship, and in this manner we got them to understand our desires. For presently some of them went away and came back after a little, and held up for us to see a very great square of white, and upon it a great no. And at this we were again at our wit's end to know how it would be possible to rescue those within the ship. For suddenly our whole desire to leave the island was changed into a determination to rescue the people in the hulk. And indeed had our intentions not been such, we had been veritable curs though I am happy to tell that we had no thought at this juncture, but for those who were now looking to us to restore them once more to the world to which they had been so long strangers. Now, as I have said, we were again at our wit's end to know how to come at those within the hulk, and there we stood all of us, talking together. Perchance we should hit upon some plan, and anon we would turn and wave to those who watched us so anxiously. Yet a while passed, and we had come no nearer to a method of rescue. Then a thought came to me, waked perchance by the mention of shooting the rope over to the hulk by means of a mortar, how that I had read once in a book of a fair maid whose lover effected her escape from a castle by a similar artifice, only that in his case he made use of a bow in place of a mortar, and a cord instead of a rope his sweetheart hauling up the rope by means of the cord. Now it seemed to me a possible thing to substitute a bow for the mortar, if only we could find the material with which to make such a weapon, and with this in view, I took up one of the lengths of the bamboo-like reed and tried the spring of it, which I found to be very good, for this curious growth of which I have spoken hitherto as a reed had no real resemblance to that plant, beyond its appearance, it being extraordinarily tough and woody, and having considerably more nature than a bamboo. Now having tried the spring of it, I went over to the tent, and cut a piece of Samson linen, which I found among the gear, and with this and the reed I contrived a rough bow. Then I looked about until I came upon a very young and slender reed which had been cut with the rest, and from this I fashioned some sort of an arrow, feathering it with a piece of one of the broad, stiff leaves which grew upon the plant, and after that I went forth to the crowd about the leeward edge of the hill. Now, when they saw me thus armed, they seemed to think that I intended a jest, and some of them laughed, conceiving that it was a very odd action on my part. But then when I explained that which was in my mind, they ceased from laughter and shook their heads, making that I did but waste time for, as they said, nothing save gunpowder could cover so great a distance. 
After that, they turned again to the bosun with whom some of them seemed to be in argument. And so for a little space I held my peace and listened. Thus I discovered that certain of the men advocated the taking of the boat so soon as it was sufficiently repaired and making a passage through the weed to the ship, which they proposed to do by cutting a narrow canal. But the bosun shook his head and reminded them of the great devil fish and crabs and the worst things which the weed concealed, saying that those in the ship would have done it long since had it been possible, and at that the men were silenced, being robbed of their unreasoning ardor by his warning. Then just at that point there happened a thing which proved the wisdom of that which the bosun contended. For suddenly one of the men cried out to us to look, and at that we turned quickly and saw that there was a great commotion among those who were in the open place in the superstructure. For they were running this way and that, and some were pushing to the slide which filled the opening. And then immediately we saw the reason for their agitation and haste, for there was a stir in the weed near to the stem of the ship, and the next instant monstrous tentacles were reached up to the place where had been the opening, but the door was shut, and those aboard the hulk in safety. At this manifestation, the men about me who had proposed to make use of the boat, and the others also, cried out their horror of the vast creature, and I am convinced, had the rescue depended upon their use of the boat, than had those in the hulk been forever doomed. Now conceiving that this was a good point at which to renew my importunities, I began once again to explain the probability of my plan succeeding addressing myself more particularly to the bosun. I told how that I had read that the ancients made mighty weapons, some of which could throw a great stone so heavy as two men over a distance surpassing a quarter of a mile. Moreover, that they compassed huge catapults which threw a lance, or great arrow, even further. On this he expressed much surprise, never having heard of the like but doubted greatly that we should be able to construct such a weapon. Yet I told him that I was prepared, for I had the plan of one clearly in my mind, and further I pointed out to him that we had the wind in our favor, and that we were a great height up, which would allow the arrow to travel the farther before it came so low as the weed. Then I stepped to the edge of the hill, and bidding him watch, fitted my arrow to the string, and having bent the bow, loosed it, whereupon being aided by the wind and the height on which I stood, the arrow plunged into the weed at a distance of near two hundred yards from where we stood, that being about a quarter of the distance on the road to the derelict. At that, the boson was won over to my idea, though, as he remarked, the arrow had fallen nearer had it been drawing a length of yarn after it, and to this I had to assent but pointing out that my bow and arrow was but a rough affair, and more that I was no archer. Yet I promised him, with the bow that I should make, to cast a shaft clean over the hulk, did he but give me his assistance, and bid the men to help. Now, as I have come to regard it in the light of greater knowledge, my promise was exceeding rash, but I had faith in my concept, and was very eager to put it to the test the which, after much discussion at supper, it was decided I should be allowed to do.
Chapter 12 The Making of the Great Bow The fourth night upon the island was the first to pass without incident. It is true that a light showed from the hulk out in the weed, but now that we had made some acquaintance with her inmates, it was no longer a cause for excitement so much as contemplation. As for the valley where the vile things had made an end of Job, it was very silent and desolate under the moonlight, for I made a point to go and view it during my time on watch. Yet, for all that it lay empty, it was still very eerie and a place to conjure up uncomfortable thoughts so that I spent no great time pondering it. This was the second night on which we had been free from the terror of the devil things, and it seemed to me that the great fire had put them in fear of us and driven them away. But of the truth or error of this idea, I was to learn later. Now, it must be admitted that apart from a short look into the valley and occasional starings at the light out in the weed, I gave little attention to aught but my plans for the great bow and to such use did I put my time, that when I was relieved, I had each particular and detail worked out, so that I knew very well just what to set the men doing, so soon as we should make a start in the morning. Presently, when the morning had come, and we had made an end of breakfast, we turned to upon the great bow, the bosun directing the men under my supervision. Now, the first matter to which I bent attention was the raising, to the top of the hill, of the remaining half of that portion of the topmast, which the bosun had split in twain to procure the batten for the boat. To this end, we went down, all of us, to the beach where lay the wreckage, and, getting about the portion which I intended to use, carried it to the foot of the hill. Then we sent a man to the top to let down the rope by which we had moored the boat to the sea anchor, and when we had bent this on securely to the piece of timber, we returned to the hilltop and tailed on to the rope, and so presently, after much weariful pulling, had it up. The next thing I desired was that the split face of the timber should be rubbed straight, and this the bosun understood to do. And whilst he was about it, I went with some of the men to the grove of reeds, and here, with great care, I made a selection of some of the finest, these being for the bow, and after that I cut some which were very clean and straight, intending them for the great arrows. With these we returned once more to the camp, and there I set to and trimmed them of their leaves, keeping these latter, for I had use for them. Then I took a dozen reeds and cut them each to a length of twenty-five feet, and afterwards notched them for the strings. In the meanwhile, I had sent two men down to the wreckage of the masts to cut away a couple of the hempen shrouds and bring them to the camp. And they, appearing about this time, I set to work to unlay the shrouds so that they might get out the fine white yarns which lay beneath the outer covering of tar and blacking. These when they had come at them, we found to be very good and sound. And this being so, I bid them make three yarn senet, meaning it for the strings of the bows. Now, it will be observed that I have said bows, and this I will explain. It had been my original intention to make one great bow, 
lashing a dozen of the reeds together for the purpose. But this, upon pondering it, I conceive to be but a poor plan. For there would be much life and power lost in the rendering of each piece through the lashings when the bow was released. To obviate this, and further to compass the bending of the bow, the which had at first been a source of puzzlement to me as to how it was to be accomplished, I had determined to make twelve separate bows, and these I intended to fasten at the end of the stock one above the other, so that they were all in one place vertically, and because of this conception I should be able to bend the bows one at a time, and slip each string over the catch notch, and afterwards frap the twelve strings together in the middle part, so that they would be but one string to the butt of the arrow. All this I explained to the boson, who indeed had been exercised in his own mind as to how we should be able to bend such a bow as I intended to make, and he was mightily pleased with my method of evading this difficulty, and also one other, which else had been greater than the bending, and that was the stringing of the bow, which would have proved very awkward work. Presently the boson called out to me that he had got the surface of the stock sufficiently smooth and nice, and at that I went over to him, for now I wished him to burn a slight groove down the center, running from end to end, and this I desired to be done very exactly, for upon it depended much of the true flight of the arrow. Then I went back to my own work, for I had not yet finished notching the bows. Presently, when I had made an end of this, I called for a length of the senate, and with the aid of another man, contrived to string one of the bows. This, when I had finished, I found to be very springy, and so stiff to bend that I had all that I could manage to do so, and at this I felt very satisfied. Presently it occurred to me that I should do well to set some of the men to work upon the line which the arrow was to carry, for I had determined that this should be made also from the white hemp yarns, and for the sake of lightness, I conceived that one thickness of yarn would be sufficient, but so that it might compass enough of strength, I bid them split the yarns, and lay the two halves up together, and in this manner they made me a very light and sound line, though it must not be supposed that it was finished at once, for I needed over half a mile of it, and thus it was later finished than the bow itself. Having now gotten all things in train, I set me down to work upon one of the arrows, for I was anxious to see what sort of a fist I should make of them, knowing how much would depend upon the balance and truth of the missile. In the end, I made a very fair one, feathering it with its own leaves and truing and smoothing it with my knife, after which I inserted a small bolt in the forward end to act as a head and, as I conceived, give it balance. Though whether I was right in this latter, I am unable to say. Yet before I finished my arrow, the boson had made the groove, and called me over to him that I might admire it, the which I did, for it was done with a wonderful neatness. Now I have been so busy with my description of how we made the great bow that I omitted to tell of the flight of time, and how we had eaten our dinner this long while since, and how that the people in the hulk had waved to us and we had returned their signals, and then written upon a length of the canvas the one word, 
wait. And beside all this, some had gathered our fuel for the coming night. And so presently the evening came upon us, but we ceased not to work. For the bosun bade the men to light a second great fire beside our former one, and by the light of this we worked another long spell, though it seemed short enough by reason of the interest of the work. Yet at last the bosun bade us to stop and make supper, which we did, and after that he set the watches, and the rest of us turned in, for we were very weary. In spite of my previous weariness, when the man whom I relieved called me to take my watch, I felt very fresh and wide awake, and spent a great part of the time, as on the preceding night, in studying over my plans for completing the great bow, and it was then that I decided finally in what manner I would secure the bows athwart the end of the stock, for until then I had been in some little doubt, being divided between several methods. Now, however, I concluded to make twelve grooves across the sawn ends of the stock, and fit the middles of the bows into these, one above the other, as I have already mentioned, and then to lash them at each side to bolts driven into the sides of the stock. And with this idea I was very well pleased, for it promised to make them secure, and this without any great amount of work. Now, though I spent much of my watch in thinking over the details of the prodigious weapon, yet it must not be supposed that I neglected to perform my duty as watchman, for I walked continually about the top of the hill, keeping my cut and thrust ready for any sudden emergency. Yet my time passed off quietly enough, though it is true that I witnessed one thing which brought me a short spell of disquiet thought. It was in this wise. I had come to that part of the hilltop which overhung the valley, and it came to me, abruptly, to go near to the edge and look over. Thus, the moon being very bright, and the desolation of the valley reasonably clear to the eye, it appeared to me, as I looked, that I saw a movement among certain of the fungi which had not burnt, but stood up shriveled and blackened in the valley. Yet by no means could I be sure that it was not a sudden fancy, born of the eeriness of that desolate-looking veil, the more so as I was like to be deceived because of the uncertainty which the light of the moon gives. Yet to prove my doubts, I went back until I had found a piece of rock easy to throw, and this, taking a short run, I cast into the valley, aiming at the spot where it had seemed to me that there had been a movement. Immediately upon this I caught a glimpse of some moving thing, and then, more to my right, something else stirred, and at this I looked towards it, but could discover nothing. Then, looking back at the clump at which I had aimed my missile, I saw that the slime-covered pool, which lay near, was all a quiver, or so it seemed. Yet the next instant I was just as full of doubt, for even as I watched it, I perceived that it was quite still, and after that for some time I kept a very strict gaze into the valley, yet could nowhere discover aught to prove my suspicions, and at last I ceased from watching it, for I feared to grow fanciful, and so wandered to that part of the hill which overlooked the weed. 
Presently, when I had been relieved, I returned to sleep, and so till the morning. Then, when we had each of us a hasty breakfast, for all were grown mightily keen to see the great bow completed, we set two upon it, each at our appointed task. Thus the bosun and I made it our work to make the twelve grooves athwart the flat end of the stock, into which I proposed to fit and lash the bows, and this we accomplished by means of the iron fuddock shroud, which we heated in its middle part, and then each taking an end, protecting our hands with canvas, we went one on each side and applied the iron, until at length we had the grooves burnt out very nicely and accurately. This work occupied us all the morning, for the grooves had to be deeply burnt, and in the meantime, the men had completed near enough senate for the stringing of the bows. Yet those who were at work on the line which the arrow was to carry had scarce made more than half, so that I called off one man from the senate to turn to and give them a hand with the making of the line. When dinner was ended, the bosun and I set to about fitting the bows into their places, which we did, and lashed them to twenty-four bolts, twelve aside, driven into the timber of the stock, about twelve inches in from the end. After this, we bent and strung the bows, taking very great care to have each bent exactly as the one below it, for we started at the bottom. And so before sunset, we had that part of our work ended. Now, because the two fires which we had lit on the previous night had exhausted our fuel, the bosun deemed it prudent to cease work and go down all of us to bring up a fresh supply of the dry seaweed and some bundles of the reeds. This we did, making an end of our journeyings just as the dusk came over the island. Then, having made a second fire, as on the preceding night, we had first our supper, and after that another spell of work, all the men turning to upon the line which the arrow was to carry, while the bosun and I set to, each of us, upon the making of a fresh arrow, for I had realized that we should have to make one or two flights before we could hope to find our range and make true our aim. Later, maybe about nine of the night, the bosun bade us all to put away our work, and then he set the watches, after which the rest of us went into the tent to sleep, for the strength of the wind made the shelter a very pleasant thing. That night, when it came my turn to watch, I minded me to take a look into the valley, but though I watched at intervals through the half of an hour, I saw nothing to lead me to imagine that I had indeed seen aught on the previous night, and so I felt more confident in my mind that we should be troubled no further by the devil things which had destroyed poor Job. Yet I must record one thing which I saw during my watch, though this was from the edge of the hilltop which overlooked the weed continent, and was not in the valley, but in the stretch of clear water which lay between the island and the weed. As I saw it, it seemed to me that a number of great fish were swimming across from the island, diagonally towards the great continent of weed. They were swimming in one wake and keeping a very regular line, but not breaking the water after the manner of porpoises or blackfish. Yet, though I have mentioned this, 
it must not be supposed that I saw any very strange thing in such a sight, and indeed I thought nothing more of it than to wonder what sorts of fish they might be. For, as I saw them indistinctly in the moonlight, they made a queer appearance, seeming each of them to be possessed of two tails. And further, I could have thought I perceived a flicker as of tentacles just beneath the surface, but of this I was by no means sure. Upon the following morning, having hurried our breakfast, each of us set to again upon our tasks, for we were in hopes to have the great bow at work before dinner. Soon the bosun had finished his arrow, and mine was completed very shortly after, so that there lacked nothing now to the completion of our work, save the finishing of the line and the getting of the bow into position. This latter, assisted by the men, we proceeded now to effect, making a level bed of rocks near the edge of the hill, which overlooked the weed. Upon this we placed the great bow, and then, having sent the men back to their work at the line, we proceeded to the aiming of the huge weapon. Now when we had gotten the instrument pointed, as we conceived, straight over the hulk, the which we accomplished by squinting along the groove which the bosun had burnt down the center of the stock, we turned to upon the arranging of the notch and trigger, the notch being to hold the strings when the weapon was set, and the trigger, a board bolted on loosely at the side just below the notch, to push them upwards out of this place when we desired to discharge the bow. This part of the work took up no great portion of our time, and soon we had all ready for our first flight. Then we commenced to set the bows, bending the bottom one first, and then those above in turn, until all were set. And after that, we laid the arrow very carefully in the groove. Then I took two pieces of spun yarn and frapped the strings together at each end of the notch, and by this means I was assured that all the strings would act in unison when striking the butt of the arrow. And so we had all things ready for the discharge, whereupon I placed my foot upon the trigger, and bidding the bosun watch carefully the flight of the arrow, pushed downwards. The next instant, with a mighty twang, and a quiver that made the great stock stir on its bed of rocks, the bow sprang to its lesser tension, hurling the arrow outwards and upwards in a vast arc. Now it may be conceived with what mortal interest we watched its flight, and so in a minute discovered that we had aimed too much to the right, for the arrow struck the weed ahead of the hulk, but beyond it. At that I was filled near to bursting with pride and joy, and the men who had come forward to witness the trial shouted to acclaim my success, while the bosun clapped me twice upon the shoulder to signify his regard, and shouted as loud as any. And now it seemed to me that we had but to get the true aim, and the rescue of those in the hulk would be but a matter of another day or two. For, having once gotten a line to the hulk, we should haul across a thin rope by its means, and with this a thicker one, after which we should set this up so taut as possible, and then bring the people in the hulk to the island, by means of a seat and block which we should haul to and fro along the supporting line. Now, having realized that the bow would indeed carry so far as the wreck, 
we made haste to try our second arrow, and at the same time we bade the men go back to their work upon the line, for we should have need of it in a very little while. Presently, having pointed the bow more to the left, I took the frappings off the strings, so that we could bend the bows singly, and after that we set the great weapon again. Then, seeing that the arrow was straight in the groove, I replaced the frappings and immediately discharged it. This time, to my very great pleasure and pride, the arrow went with a wonderful straightness towards the ship, and clearing the superstructure, passed out of our sight as it fell behind it. At this, I was all impatience to try to get the line to the hulk before we made our dinner, but the men had not yet laid up sufficient, there being then only 450 fathoms, which the bosun measured off by stretching it along his arms and across his chest. This being so, we went to dinner, and made very great haste through it, and after that every one of us worked at the line, and so in about an hour we had sufficient, for I had estimated that it would not be wise to make the attempt with a length less than five hundred fathoms. Having now completed a sufficiency of the line, the bosun set one of the men to flake it down very carefully upon the rock beside the bow, while he himself tested it at all such parts as he thought in any way doubtful, and so presently all was ready. Then I bent it on to the arrow, and having set the bow while the men were flaking down the line, I was prepared immediately to discharge the weapon. Now all the morning a man upon the hulk had observed us through a spyglass, from a position that brought his head just above the edge of the superstructure, and being aware of our intentions, having watched the previous flights, he understood the boson when he beckoned to him that we had made ready a third shot, and so, with an answering wave of his spyglass, he disappeared from our sight. At that, having first turned to see that all were clear of the line, I pressed down the trigger, my heart beating very fast and thick, and so in a moment the arrow was sped. But now, doubtless because of the weight of the line, it made nowhere near so good a flight as on the previous occasion, the arrow striking the weed some two hundred yards short of the hulk, and at this I could near have wept with vexation and disappointment. Immediately upon the failure of my shot, the boatswain called to the men to haul in the line very carefully so that it should not be parted through the arrow catching in the weed. Then he came over to me and proposed that we should set to at once to make a heavier arrow suggesting that it had been lack of weight in the missile which had caused it to fall short. At that I felt once more hopeful, and turned to at once to prepare a new arrow, the boson doing likewise, though in his case he intended to make a lighter one than that which had failed. For, as he put it, though the heavier one fell short, yet might the lighter succeed and if neither, then we could only suppose that the bow lacked power to carry the line, and in that case we should have to try some other method altogether. Now, in about two hours I had made my arrow, the boson having finished his a little earlier, and so, the men having hauled in all the line and flaked it down ready, we prepared to make another attempt to cast it over the hulk, 
yet a second time we failed, and by so much that it seemed hopeless to think of success. But for all that it appeared useless, the boson insisted on making a last try with the light arrow, and presently, when we had gotten the line ready again, we loosed upon the wreck. But in this case, so lamentable was our failure that I cried out to the boson to set the useless thing upon fire and burn it, for I was sorely irked by its failure and could scarce abide to speak civilly of it. Now, the boatswain perceiving how I felt, sung out that we would cease troubling about the hulk for the present, and go down all of us to gather reeds and weed for the fire, for it was drawing nigh to evening, and this we did, though all in a disconsolate condition of mind, for we had seemed so near to success, and now it appeared to be further than ever from us. In a little, having brought up a sufficiency of fuel, the boatswain sent two of the men down to one of the ledges which overhung the sea, and bade them look whether they could not secure a fish for our supper. Then, taking our places about the fire, we fell to upon a discussion as to how we should come at the people in the hulk. Now, for a while there came no suggestion worthy of notice, until at last there occurred to me a notable idea and I called out suddenly that we should make a small fire balloon and float off the line to them by such means. At that, the men about the fire were silent a moment, for the idea was new to them, and moreover they needed to comprehend just what I meant. Then, when they had come fully at it, the one who had proposed that they should make spears of their knives cried out to know why a kite would not do, and at that I was confounded, in that so simple an expedient had not occurred to any of us before. For, surely, it would be but a little matter to float a line to them by means of a kite, and further, such a thing would take no great making. And so, after a space of talk, it was decided that upon the morrow we should build some sort of kite, and with it fly a line over the hulk, the which should be a task of no great difficulty with so good a breeze as we had continually with us. And presently, having made our supper off a very fine fish, which the two fishermen had caught while we talked, the boatswain set the watches, and the rest turned in.